This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, this show is made possible by my paid subscribers at substack.com. This show really is only possible with your help. And I have to give a special thanks to all of the new Substack subscribers who have signed up over the past few days. I have just recently joined Substack, joined it back in June, and I have just been delighted by the really interesting community of people there, a broad community from all different stripes of life, from all different backgrounds, who are intellectually curious. So to everyone who has discovered Sacred Tension and my writing through the Substack network, hello, I am glad you are here. Now for all of you degenerate communist freeloaders who are not paying that's fine. I still love you. And if you are interested in becoming a paid subscriber, please go to sacredtension.substack. No. Yes, that's right. sacredtension.substack.com and you can just sign up. It's super easy. Literally takes two seconds. If you're hearing this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, don't even pause it. Just go to the link in the show notes. A window will pop up. Enter your email. It is that simple. And then I will appear in your inbox like I'm Scientology. And I will just never leave you alone. I will be like a a slasher. I will be like Michael Myers, just constantly reappearing in your life to talk about non-theistic theology and leftist politics. And then if you are able to, please do become a paying subscriber for $5 a month. It really, truly helps. If you don't become a paying subscriber, then I will be forced to start an OnlyFans in which I dress up as a clown and chase people with chainsaws for weirdos on the internet. And that will inevitably result in my arrest. And I don't want that life for me. And you don't want that life for me either. So, to avoid that fate, do please become a paying subscriber. Now, the economy is rough right now, and a lot of people cannot afford a $5 subscription, and I completely get it. I have been there myself. There are other ways to support the show. Chief among them is to just share sacred tension with your friends. So, use the share button. When you read an article on sacred tension that you like, or when you listen to a show that you really like, please share it with your friends. Share the sacred tension mind virus with the world. And that is possibly the best way to support my work. Well, with all of that out of the way, it is an enormous pleasure to welcome Yasha Monk to the show. Yasha, welcome. Thank you so much. Can I just say that was the best uh, pitch for subscribers I've ever heard, I think. Well, you should definitely utilize it at, at Persuasion. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, I think it's idiosyncratic to you. I'm not sure that would work, but, uh, you know, threatening <laughs> people with, uh, you know, what, what, what you'll do in the world unless they subscribe and you'll end up in jail. Very good. <laughs> All right. So tell us some about who you are and what you do. Uh, so, so I'm Yasha Monk. I am a professor at Johns Hopkins University. I write for the Atlantic. You know, I have a podcast called The Good Fight. Um, but really, what I've done for the last decade is to be very concerned about the threats to democracy from right-wing populism. Uh, that's what I started. You know, writing a, a lot about when I was a grad student. 
Uh, I like to say that I'm a democracy hipster. I was worried about the state of democracy before it was cool. Um, uh, at a time when people sort of thought, you know, how could you possibly worry about democracy in a place like the United States? You know, we've always had a democracy. There's really no reasons to be concerned. Um, so I did a lot of work on that. I wrote two books about that. I wrote hundreds of articles about that, hundreds of episodes for my podcast. There's always been something else that I was quite concerned about, though. And that was uh, sort of the first signs of uh, illiberalism uh, within my own uh, social and uh, professional circles. Uh, the rise uh, of sort of two things which are related for a little bit distinct. Uh, one just of, uh, you know, a very censorious culture in which if you didn't believe in particular things or if you said the wrong thing or, you know, if you were accused of, you know, various sort of fraud crimes, um, uh, you know, you were excommunicated from good standing in your school, your university, your workplace, your social setting. And the other related thing was a really different way of thinking about politics. You know, I'm off the left and from the left, but for me, a lot of the left was universalist. It was the idea that, you know, for all the history of the world, people have been discriminated against in terrible ways because of a particular group to which they belong or the beliefs that they have. And we want to live in a world in which we fight for equality, in which how you're treated becomes less dependent on the kind of groups of which you are part, in which you can realize that, you know, you and I may have deep theological differences or, um, uh, you know, different sexual preferences, but that doesn't stop us from understanding each other. That doesn't stop us from uh, fighting for, for, for a better world together. And, you know, I saw the rise of this set of ideas about race, gender, and sexual orientation, which I think really started to define people by the groups of which they're part, which tried and aims to remodel the world in such a way that how we treat each other is more rather than less dependent on the groups of which we're apart. And for the people who fight for that are often full of good intentions. I think that that has become a, a political trap and a, and a personal trap. And so I wrote a book, which is out now, called The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Mm. At the beginning of your book, you talk some about your grandparents and the leftism that you inherited from your grandparents. Talk some about your grandparents, who they were, the life they lived, and the the principles and ideals that you inherited from them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my grandparents were born and raised in, you know, shtetls in, in in Central and Eastern Europe. They all come from what today would be Ukraine. For at the time uh, of the birth, it was still the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And as teenagers, all four of my grandparents became communists. And the, the reason for that uh, was in good part that they saw the extreme forms of discrimination uh, that they suffered as Jews, but that other groups suffered as well, as well as the poverty. And they bought the uh, promises of communism, that it would be a society in which you know, workers of the world would unite, in which irrespective of the kind of group in which you're from, you would be able to develop a substantial form of solidarity with each other. Uh, my, my grandparents were all jailed at some point for their communist activities in, in pre-war Poland. Uh, they survived, unlike many other parts of their family, by uh, uh, fleeing east and, 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 and surviving the war in the Soviet Union. And when they came back in the late 40s and lived in Poland and, and helped in various ways to build up the communist regime. But the regime turned on them. So in 1967, there was about 50,000 Jews left in Poland. Um, there had been 3 million, but most were 
murdered in the Holocaust and then a lot of the remaining ones left the country directly after the war. Uh, but about 50,000 were left in 1967. By 1970, there was 500. And that final drop in the Jewish population of Poland was caused by a big anti-Semitic state-sponsored campaign uh, that encouraged them strongly uh, and violently to leave the country. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, by the time that I was growing up, I was born in 1982. Um, you know, my grandparents had come to understand some of the deep feelings of communism, come to understand that it did not, in fact, create a society in which uh, uh, people were treated equally and, and created a deeply oppressive society. Um, but they were, you know, still true to some of the initial impetus of trying to build a society where there's more economic solidarity with the poor and a society in which um, we're not defined by the kind of group into which we're born. So that to me was, you know, what it meant to be on the left. Um, and I do think that over the course of my lifetime, I've seen a real transformation in what it means to be left wing. One in which we pay more attention, sometimes in good ways, uh, to ways that people might face discrimination because of the group to which they belong. You know, the student movements of the 1960s were quite sexist, they were in certain ways racist, and we're more attuned to those things, and that's a good thing but also a kind of leftism and progressivism that have really given up on the kind of universal aspirations and given up on key values like free speech that have been part and parcel of healthy left-wing movements for a very long time. There's always less liberal leftist movements. There's always the kinds of movements that ended up with the deep injustices of the Soviet Union. Um, but the, the dominant mode on the left was one that was more universalist and those defensive of values like free speech. And I'm really perturbed by the fact um, uh, but the left is currently in the process of saying goodbye to many of those values. I think that's a mistake, and that's one of the things that that motivated me to write this book. Mm, yeah, I am also perturbed by it. And you have this passage in your book, <clears throat> and it's been a long time since I felt this seen by a book that I've read. Um, but oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, your your book is wonderful, and I will definitely be screeching about it from the rooftops for a long time on my Substack. And you talk about this a, a the, this anti universalism, this this uh, dismissal of universalism, and acknowledgement of identity without the bedrock of human universalism, and that we are. We have more in common than we have uh, not in common, that we have this shared human condition, we have this shared human experience, this this dismissal of that. And I've always contended that it is important to acknowledge and think about and and uh, enact policies that involve identity. That's important. You know, there are ways and I mean, depending on the policy. Right. But there's identity is important. But when it loses that fundamental bedrock, when we lose the two polars of the two polar extremes of identity and framing, framing our framing all of those middle identities of sex and gender and orientation and race and religion out, outside of the context of those two polar identities, which are first and foremost, we are individuals and we are human. When we lose those, I really worry about the consequences of that. And you have this passage here about how uncomfortable it is for some people when 
that happens. So you write, others will chafe under the expectations of such a society because they do not wish to make their membership in some group they did not choose so central to their self-conception. They might, for example, define themselves in terms of their individual tastes and temperaments, their artistic predilections, or their sense of moral duty toward all humanity. People with a wide variety of personal beliefs and religious convictions are likely to feel alienated in a society that most prizes a form of self-conscious identification with some group into which they were born. That encapsulates my personal anxiety and personal sense of alienation in, in a lot of the spaces that I move in, where I feel like the fact that I'm gay is the least interesting thing about me. That's the most boring part about me. It's important if people don't know that I'm gay, then they don't know me. But there's this very real sense now that I don't become gay with a capital G until I leave my house. And then I enter this world where being gay really matters in a, in a way that chafes against what matters to me. I think what's most interesting to me are my values, my interests, the life that I'm trying to build, the principles that I follow. That's what really matters to me, and that's what I want people to know me for. Uh, to me, being gay is part of that, but it's hardly the the most important thing. And it, it's, it's this cognitive dissonance that I'm experiencing more and more where I don't, I feel like I only become gay with a capital G. I only become queer the moment I leave my house. But the, the, my life inside my home with my partner is one that of so much more freedom, I feel like, so much more expansiveness than the one I feel like I have outside my home that is constrained by this bizarre, narrow, tunnel-visioned celebration of my orientation. So I I read that passage and related so deeply to it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. You know, a few thoughts on this. The first is that, uh, you know, I think the current discourse about identity the way we think about it now is a sort of political trap and I go through a whole bunch of different examples of how it ends up undermining progressive goals and in fact one of the ways in which this project relates to my earlier books about the rights of you know, right-wing populism is that at some superficial level these two things are in conflict with each other but more fundamentally they actually help each other one is the yin to the other's yang is, is, is how I put it um, uh, you know the sort of dominance of these ideas helps people like Donald Trump get elected. And, you know, the problems of people like Donald Trump helps sort of enforce the orthodoxy in those progressive and leftist communities who now think that anybody who disagrees on some important thing is sort of a traitor or secretly on the side of somebody like Trump, right? But actually the thing that motivates me quite strongly is the ways in which we identity trap is is a personal trap. Um, And sort of, you know, for my own story, I ended up growing up in Germany um, as somebody who again had these grandparents and parents who were well, grandparents who had been communist parents who you know had not really been raised with any strong traditions or anything like that, I, I haven't even gotten my bar mitzvah. Um, you know, I, I I I've been to synagogues a handful of times in my life, um, but uh, you know, if I mention to anybody this fact about my family, which is obviously an important fact given the ways in which we were persecuted for many generations. 
um, it defined me in the eyes of a lot of people I was growing up with in the 90s and 2000s. And some of that was forms of anti-Semitism. So some of that was people who had prejudices against Jews and so on. Those unpleasant, but it was kind of easier to deal with in a way because saying, you know, screw you, you know, like I'm not worse because of who I am. And I can sort of react with, you know, pride and 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 um and a form of even dignity. But there's also uh forms of philo-Semitism that I found to be very creepy. People who the moment they learned I was Jewish tried to prove to me sort of how sorry they were for uh what had happened in 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 Germany or how much they loved the Jews or you know how beautiful a language Hebrew is, even if I don't speak Hebrew, obviously. Um and uh and that really made it hard for me to feel like a true equal with them. Um, and so one of the things I worry about is that, you know, young people want to feel seen um, and everybody wants to feel seen. That's part of what it is to be human, I think. And the ideology at the moment promises them that if only you identify very strongly at your intersection of identities, right? If you say what really defines me is that I am, you know, uh, uh, a female queer Asian American who X, Y, Z, right? Um, that's going to give you that kind of recognition. And I think that's just a profound psychological mistake because as you're saying, a lot of what drives us is that we're human, that we're individuals. It's not that you're a queer Asian American or whatever. It's that you're all of us things, sure, but but who has particular views and preferences and ideas and a particular sense of humor, a particular look, a particular sense of taste and preferences in the world. And so some of the sort of right-wing critiques of identity politics, like, oh, these young people, they all want to be the unique little snowflakes. My critique of it is that your intersection of identities is never going to express in the ways in which, yes, we are all unique little snowflakes. Yes. And to actually be seen in the world is to be seen as us in that individual way. Now, part of that, of course, is that you need to be able to say and acknowledge the ways in which you're a member of a group, right? In the 80s and 90s in the United States, if you came out as gay, you might lose your TV show, you might lose your employment, you might um, you know, have neighbors treat you terribly. Um, you might have your parents treat you terribly, and some of that still persists. You know, obviously, you can't be yourself in those circumstances, and you need some amount of collective identity politics to fight against that form of oppression, 100%. But that doesn't mean that you're defined by those things. In fact, it means that you want to live in a society where you can tell your neighbors you're gay, you can tell your employee you're gay, and we're not going to say, oh, so what you are, a capital H homosexual, and that's what drives my perception of you. But like, all right, great, you know. You, Stephen, I like you because of, you know, your sense of humor, or I don't like you because you're a little zany or whatever, right? Um, and the fact that you're gay is is a fact about you. That's, you know, not unimportant, but, but ultimately incidental to who you are. Yeah, you know, I've I've noticed this ongoing chafing that I have with some of my comrades on the left, where, to me, the whole point of gay liberation was for it to not matter. And so that I could get over the business of, you know, get over this tedious business of having to spend a lot of time ruminating over my sexuality and other people ruminating over my sexuality because that's weird and boring. And I I had always assumed that attaining genuine equality would mean my homosexuality becoming incidental. And that is not the that is not the case in a, in a lot of my spaces where um, I don't want to be celebrated. I know I sound like such a fucking boomer curmudgeon saying this, but I don't 
I don't have it in me to celebrate this thing about me because I didn't choose it. I It has made me who I am. If people don't know that I'm gay, then they don't know me. But to me, the whole point of, of equality is to get past all that, to, to finally get to the work of living a good life and to be, to quote MLK, to be judged by the content of my character, you know, and that is definitely not the attitude among a lot of my peers. And so I have I've discovered this this uncomfortable chafing. So let's so, you know, kind of expanding the scope beyond our our own experiences, give some you give some examples in the book of of. Uh, how do I say this? Identitarianism without universalism, kind of going awry in the wild. So you, one of the stories you start your book with is a story about a school, and uh, you you interview the mother of a little girl going to a school. Tell that story. Yeah, I think it's a it's 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 a really powerful example where you see you know the distinction between you know, a healthy pride of the culture you're from and, and, and the circumstances and an unhealthy way in which institutions impose um, separation and identity on people. Um, so this is the story of Carla Posey, who's an uh, African-American educator who lives in the suburbs of Atlanta. She does some work with schools in the area. And one of the things that that traditionally means is that sort of the principal lets you choose the, the, the teacher that your class, that your, that your kid is assigned to. And she checked with the principal that would be okay. And the principal said, sure, send over the name. And she requests a particular teacher for one of her daughters, who's of elementary school age. And the principal keeps sort of demurring in weird ways, keeps sort of being, you know, not responding to emails or saying, well, you know, isn't there another teacher that your kid might like? And when she kind of says, look, what's going on here? You know, you said I could choose the teacher. I requested the teacher. Why won't let you have the teacher that I think is the best for her? And the principal says, well, you know, that's not the black class. Um, You know, your kid should go to the black class. And, you know, at this point, you might think that this is a kind of uh, uh, unfortunately familiar traditional story of racial discrimination and segregation in the American South. Um, but the principal herself turns out to be a black woman and in fact a very progressive black woman. And what you know she's motivated by is this new kind of pedagogical set of ideas where, as, as one really influential book puts it, you know, even if a kid from a minority group has a healthy social environment in which uh, they're not being discriminated against, um, and they have a lot of friends. Um, you know, if they don't have uh, the requisite number of friends from the same race group, there's something fundamentally awry. And to avoid that happening, we have to make sure that they're in these affinity groups, or in this case, that the black girl is sent to the black class. Um, and this is not a complete outlier. I'm not saying that this kind of thing happens everywhere, but there is a, a broader set of phenomena which is deeply related. Um, so particularly at elite private schools, which don't have the same restrictions as public schools, you don't just have, you know, cultural clubs of 15, 16 year olds can choose to spend time with people who are like them, which is a freedom that people shouldn't have. Um, but you have, you know, kids at the age of six or seven have a teacher waltz into a classroom and say, hey, you're black, you go there. You're Latino, you go there. Uh, you know, you're Asian American, go there. You're white, you go over there. And the, the idea here is really to encourage people to embrace their racial identity as strongly as possible. And in some places, even for white kids to have these separate groups and to, quote, unquote, embrace the whiteness. And the idea here is that, uh, you know, the, the, the members of minority groups are going to learn how to fight back against 
uh, oppression and injustice, and the member of the white group are somehow going to uh, become convinced, you know, anti-racist activists who recognize the sort of uh, uh, dangers of a white privilege. I think what we're setting up is a society in which we are going to have fewer bases for social solidarity, in which rather than seeing ourselves as members of the same class, members of the same sports team at school, members of, you know, a band, members of, you know, whatever class community that uh, transcends some of those things and allows us to have a deeper understanding and friendship with each other. We're going to say, well, I'm black and I'm Latino and I'm Asian American. And this is not organic. It is imposed by the school. And I particularly worry about the white kids because a few of them might become anti-racist activists and that's great. Uh, but but if, I, if there's anything I've learned from history and from social psychology, is that you know how we decide who's in and who's out is very malleable. It really depends on the context. But once I've decided you're part of my in-group and those people over there are my out-group, the most important thing about me uh, is that I'm white. Once you've decided that, you're much more likely to, to favor the in-group and discriminate against the out-group. So the idea of these kind of pedagogical practices, which are very common now, are going to lead us to a more tolerant, more diverse society that treats its members fairly, I think it's just just deeply naive and therefore dangerous. I agree. You know, there's one particular, I'm, I'm trying to find it in your book here, and I'm not finding it right now, but there's this, you quote a pedagogical resource uh, for schools, and it is something like, it, it, just working from memory here, something like, we need to teach children that they are primarily racial beings that we are racial beings, that race is central. And it was a direct renunciation of kind of shared humanity that we have more in common than we don't have in common. It was a doubling down on racial identity. And, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Jonathan Livingston Smith, who is, he wrote Making Monsters. He's a scholar of dehumanization. I recently had him on my show. I think you would really vibe with a lot of his work because it's fascinating. Hmm. But um, I interviewed him recently, and in that conversation, he he shows really clearly how these how how placing a a boundary between human beings without emphasizing shared humanity without doubling down on the fact that we are all human if we don't have that expanded circle then that is how dehumanization arises and he talked about this particularly in in relation to race and and how dangerous it is to pretend like race is real race is there there are genetic and and physical differences of course we can all see them absolutely but that's different from race race is this is this fundamental invisible essence that is almost like supernatural that those physical differences are a manifestation of right that and that thing that thing through history that has been called race that thing does not exist and by reifying that thing we are just creating the conditions for more racism and I, like if you have a single liberal bone in your body when you if you read that quote that you that that thing from that pedagogical text that you quoted you just like cringe down to, yeah. to your soul because i can't imagine anything more regressive than a top-down divisions to, instituting top-down divisions on race uh, between white people and black people and you know like like we there was a study done that and I don't know how how validated this is that could like show that people there there was this test done 
that show that even based on different colored shirts, people will will balkanize. People will develop us versus them mentalities. Like this is deep in our human psychology. And if we institute these these boundaries with and there there are boundaries, of course. There are there are there are boundaries between countries. There are there are boundaries between different groups. Boundaries are real, but they become reified in a very dangerous way when we don't emphasize shared humanity. So, and they're all permeable, like like they're imaginary. Yeah, go on. If you have any thoughts on yeah. that, please share them. No, yeah, I have, I have, yeah, I have, I have lots of uh, thoughts on this. And the first thing is, you know, one of the things that I find heartening is that there's a very, very broad set of moral and religious traditions that each in a different way rejects the idea that we're profoundly defined by that kind of group membership. Um, the one that that that, that I'm uh, um, you know most 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 identified with or identify myself most with is a form of humanist universalism or philosophical liberalism. Um, which emphasizes, as you said earlier, very nicely, that we're individuals and humans, right? That's that's the most fundamental part of it. Now, part of being an individual is that you might be born into a particular group and say, hey, that one is important to me. I believe in the faith of my parents, or I have, you know, a, a group of people in the village I'm from, but I'm really strongly identified with, and, and I want to live up to the kinds of expectations and obligations that come with that. That's one of the freedoms that people should have in our society, just as they should be free to go and you know move to New York City and remake themselves in a certain kind of way. That's all great. But to say you're profoundly defined by the fact that you're white rather than black, that you're or, or even you know, worse, Italian that rather than Nigerian. Other people are. That's like right, right. most most worst of all, that other people are. You can choose yes, to yes. be profoundly defined by something. That's fine. We have that freedom. But yes. to say other people are, that's that's and the fact, danger. And in fact, not just that I think you are, but I think my goal as an educator is to go out and make sure that people come to the correct view of themselves as racial beings. Right? Yeah. And that fa- yeah. that thankfully is rejected by this really broad set of of moral and tra- religious traditions. That's something what's interesting to me about this conversation as well, right? And so, so that actually gives me uh, uh, a little bit of hope in in, in 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 this respect. But the danger you you outline is absolutely real. And there are two fundamental findings in social psychology, I just want to mention. The one is the one you invoke about the different shirts. Um, that's called the minimal group paradigm. And it shows how easily we can get groups off the ground that... Um, uh, you know, you can create different groups by just assigning them and say, basically, you're part of this group now, and people are going to start preferring the interests of members of that group over that of others. One famous way of doing that is to have people debate about whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich. And it turns out, I've done this with my students, um, you know, you let them debate this for 10 minutes, and the, the kids who say a hot dog is a sandwich end up favoring uh, others who do the same and discriminating against the kids who think that a hot dog is not a sandwich. So you can create a society that is, you know, Deeply and 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 and, and fundamentally uh, uh, polarized along the lines of all kinds of identity groups, and you know, obviously that was the case for a long, long part of American history. I think we're making some significant but imperfect progress towards overcoming that. If we go around and tell seven-year-olds you are fundamentally defined as a racial being, and if you're white, then what really defines you is your whiteness. The the, the natural. Uh, consequence of that is going to be that I'm going to fight for the interests of members of my group and I'm going to fight 
uh, against members uh, of other groups or against the interests of members of other groups. And we know from history how badly that's gone wrong. And there's another really important tradition in social psychology that I think it's worth um, uh, recognizing, which is uh, intergroup contact theory. And what it basically shows is that when members of different groups end up in conversation with each other, end up collaborating in various ways, that really helps to undermine prejudices. How did a lot of gay liberation happen? Well, because for a long time, people who are gay were in the closet. And so most people falsely believed that they didn't know any gay people. And so it's easy to think, well, these gay people, they have these terrible attributes. Once people come out and once you are actually in intergroup contact with people who are, you know, members of sexual minorities, like, well, but my cousin who I love is is gay and my neighbor who always seems nice and pleasant is gay and uh, actually somebody at my workplace is gay. Well, you know what? Perhaps those prejudices I held about this group were wrong. That is, that is intergroup contact theory in action. But we know that there's a few basic prerequisites for really making that intergroup contact work. And that is that not in society as a whole, perhaps, there might be discrimination there, but in the situation in which you interact, there should be substantial equality. You should have common goals in that situation rather than goals that are at cross purposes. Uh, and you should have encouragement from the outside that you should get along rather than that you should be in conflict with each other. Now, I'm going to make a stereotyping assumption about you, Stephen. I assume you're not the biggest um, jock in the world, and I'm not the biggest How did you world. know? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just guessed. But, um, but, you know, sports teams are a great way of doing that, right? Because in the sports team, you have equality. One, one player might be better than the other, but you're not defined by the kind of racial or other attributes that you bring into the situation. And you have this common goal. You might hate the you know, team of the other high school or something, but you together are really trying to 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 win this game and your coach is telling you hey keep the peace right if you have some beef you got to get along in order to play well those are the kind of situations but then you can have conversations say hey by the way you know as a member of this group i experience those kinds of forms of discrimination and you know you're already my friend and you might listen to that those are the ways in which we get better mutual understanding not affinity groups of seven-year-olds where teachers come in and say you're defined by your differences and you're naturally in conflict with each other and, you know, self-define as a racial being. Mm, yeah. And it's a fascinating subject. And for people who want to learn more about that, I did a show with a good friend of mine named uh, John Moorhead, who is the director of Multi-Faith Matters. And he he gave a masterclass uh, in, on, on my show about how to engage in contact and and just so he does multi-faith dialogue so his job is to get religious groups together in a room that would usually hate each other and moderate th that contact and so he has a lot of experience doing this and so for people who want to learn more about how to do that how to talk across divides and how to um expose yourself to different types of groups that particular episode is called how to embrace contamination um and uh the whole idea being contamination is good we need to cross contaminate and um so people can definitely check that out so th i there is a there is just very briefly on cross yes. contamination you know i have a, a completely different sort of part of a book i have a chapter on on cultural appropriation and one of the things i really worry about is uh, the sort of general taboo on that form of impurity, that form of cultural, uh, you know, cross-contamination that we've now embraced in just many parts of the mainstream. I mean, it's hard to 
write a fiction book that might be accused of cultural appropriation. It's impossible to make a Netflix uh, movie or a Hollywood uh, a show that, I guess I should say, a Netflix show or a Hollywood movie that that, um, uh, that that might be accused of that. And 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 you know, uh, that's really a, a fundamental misunderstanding of how human culture does or should work. But there's been forms of deep injustice that are sometimes called by the name of cultural appropriation. So of course it was unjust for white musicians to steal the songs of black musicians or to be deeply influenced by them and have big careers in the 50s and 60s when black musicians couldn't have those careers. But what was wrong about that was not cultural appropriation. It was either just straightforward intellectual property theft, if I take your song, or more broadly, the background conditions of deep injustice in, in the America of 1950s and 1960s. What was unjust is that the black musicians couldn't have careers in their own right um, because they were excluded from concert venues and couldn't sign with major record labels and a lot of people wouldn't buy the records because they're black. It was those forms of discrimination that was bad, not the, the sort of a broader diffusion of 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 that music, and so um, in the same uh, vein, we should really reject the idea of all forms of cultural appropriation being bad. The wrong making feature, the thing that makes those things bad, is not cross contamination. Um, it is much more straightforwardly explainable forms of injustice. And if you can't name them, if it's like, oh, I don't know, this is icky because somehow one culture is influencing another here, you really have left once again the traditional part of the left, which was always defending the ways in which human cultures evolve and change by butting up against each other, influencing each other, inspiring each other, all through history. All the great forms of our cultural repertoire come from that kind of mixity. And it's always been the right that wanted to you know, keep German culture pure, keep French culture pure, mm. keep Christian culture pure. So I think it's really important to stand up for those positive forms of mutual cultural influence against those sort of misdirected, generalized fears of, of cultural appropriation. So that's actually a great segue into a, another concern that people might have listening to this, which is a lot of the points that we're hitting here kind of rhyme with what you might find on places like The Daily Wire or PragerU. Um, an obsession with "quote unquote" wokeness, a a concern about um, leftist pieties, uh, cancellations, you know that, and uh, you know, right now Ron DeSantis is running a whole campaign on stock on stopping the existential threat of woke. So, so a lot of the, and I I very deliberately don't use the word woke because I think that it it's so contaminated now in a in a way that is um, just muddies the water and uh, does not get to. What and and I do the same, by the way, yeah. which is why I tend to call about the identity synthesis of the identity trap. Yes, um, you know, we need some neutral term. Uh, the trap obviously is valuative. I do think it's a trap that we fall into. But the identity synthesis is a neutral, slightly boring term, precisely so that we can say, hey, let's name this ideology in a way where people who defend it, people who dislike it, people who feel ambivalent about it can actually name the thing we're discussing, which otherwise we, we currently don't have. And it's worth pointing out that there's been real resistance to naming it. There's been, at least that's what it feels like, yeah. is there's been real resistance to attempts to come up with a with a with a label, with a name, so that we can talk about it and and adherent saying, no, that's insulting or no, that's that's whatever. And and there's been this real kind of weird language war about resistance to naming this thing that is obviously real. It is a real ideology. It is having effects in the world. So that's interesting. But 
I think that this whole topic, this whole issue mm-hmm. has been lodged in people's brains, categorized under right wing propaganda. This is the kind of shit that you find on PragerU. This is the kind of shit that you see right-wing trolls, and this is what you see coming from people like Christopher Rufo. And how are you different? Why should people who have dismissed those concerns because they don't like those people, why should they listen to you? Why should they take this seriously? What's Mm -hmm. different about you? Uh, well, I think it's a really important uh, question. Look, uh, the, the first is just my, my 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 track record and 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 my ongoing political positions, right? I mean, um, I sort of made my name as a graduate student by warning about the rise of populism, which exists on the left and people like Hugo Chavez and Venezuela, but which is predominantly a right wing phenomenon. And you know, I've read, I've written countless articles, you know, uh, extolling the vices. Of, of Donald Trump, and I continue to be deeply concerned about the fact that he might win in 2024 and what would happen to the United States and the world if if he does win. Um, you know, unlike some of the people you mentioned, I'm uh, very perturbed by uh, uh, populist autocrats in other countries like Viktor Orban in, in Hungary and Narendra Modi in, in, in India and, 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 and so on and, and so forth. So, you know, uh, we have a fundamentally different political alignment in in that kind of way um the the, the second thing i would say is that i think i've uh, you know looked much more carefully at some of these traditions so i've debated christopher rufo um uh on 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 npr a few months ago about book bannings um uh you know criticizing uh the stop woke act in florida and the broader forms of censorship that we now see in in a lot of parts of 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 the united states so i'm very willing to to debate people like that um but we are on fundamentally different uh sides of of a debate and one of the things that strikes me about the stop woke act is that it doesn't just have restrictions on what you might teach in public schools which is a slightly more complicated issue because historically it has been recognized that the state obviously has some power to set curricula but even in public colleges and universities. And in fact, you know, I just taught uh, a course at a private university outside Florida um, where I debate issues like cultural appropriation and free speech and, 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 and the identity synthesis. And what I think my job is, is as an educator is uh, two things, to get students to think critically about subjects that often they've only heard one side on, but to represent both of those sides in the classroom as well and to allow them to bring the whole selves to the classroom so that they can, you know, argue for their position if they disagree with me. I I say at the beginning of class, I want everybody to change their mind a little bit about something, but I don't care in which direction, right? And and I don't care in what way, but I want you to be open to really think about the subjects and studying them. And that must mean that you'll change your mind about something somehow, but I'm not here to impose my views on you. So obviously in in that class, as just as I you know, discuss carefully the thought of, uh, uh, you know, members of a, of a tradition of critical race theory like like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, as well as many others in my book. In the classroom, I assign their thought. And you know what? I wouldn't be able to teach that class in a public college or a public university in Florida per, as per the Stop Woke Act because it prohibits, uh, you know, uh, identity politics and critical race theory in, in classrooms. That is not the way that you have real political debate. The third thing I'll say is that I have some fundamental disagreements with them about where those ideas come from. Um, so, you know, Chris Rufo claims that what I call the identity synthesis is just a form of cultural Marxism. So, 
you know, you take the Marxist tradition, you take out class and you put in identity categories. Um, and, and that explains sort of what this theory is. Um, I have a careful intellectual history in which I show uh, both that that is just the wrong understanding of where these ideas come from. Uh, it's just the wrong uh, historical genealogy of where these ideas come from, but it also therefore misleads you about the nature and 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 the drift of these ideas. Um, so, uh, so I have many deep disagreements with them. Now, I also have a disagreement with parts of the sort of progressive and even mainstream defense of and response to attacks, for example, on critical race theory. So, what ends up happening a lot of the time is that you know. Uh, some people on the right attack as woke anything they dislike, right? Um, uh, you know, the Barbie movie is woke. I haven't seen it. I don't know if it's woke or not, but it sounds to me like a stretch, right? Um, uh, you know, talking too much about the history of racial oppression is woke, right? Like caring too much. You know, that's silly. Um, and it's very important to uh, to disagree with that. Now, that sometimes makes people say, look, critical race theory is just wanting to talk critically about race in America. Right? It's just wanting to acknowledge the history of slavery, wanting to acknowledge the way in which racial discrimination persists. But when you actually read the main theorists of critical race theory, who are, who are subtle, smart scholars, people like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, it becomes really clear that that is not the case. Um, Derek Bell, fascinating figure who was a lawyer for the NAACP, helping to desegregate a lot of schools and other businesses and institutions in the American South in the 60s, comes to think of that as a mistake, comes to think that uh, he and other civil rights lawyers were ignoring the interests of the black clients, which was to get better schools, not to get integrated schools. And he starts to argue that Brown versus Board of Education was in key ways a mistake, that at the time, a lot of these civil rights organizations should have aimed for schools that were separate, but truly equal. Um, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw uh, emphasizes that Barack Obama, somebody who I tremendously admire, yes, his flaws like any politician, but he's somebody I, I, I admire and respect greatly, uh, that, that, that his basic philosophical outlook is uh, fundamentally at odds with the core tenets of critical race theory. And so, you know, these theorists want to create a world that's very different from the civil rights tradition, from the political tradition of uh, Barack Obama. Bell talks witheringly about the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. So to pretend that they're all just sort of, you know, milquetoast liberals who just, you know, want to acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of racial injustice in the country is, is doing an injustice to them, is, is parodying their tradition, uh, you know, nearly as much as as some of those figures on the right. We, we need to actually take this tradition seriously, understand it, learn from it, critique it, and think about what kind of world we want to build. And if we do that, we'll realize that there's a lot we can learn from people like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, but that the kind of society we want to build is fundamentally different from the kind of society that, that Frederick Douglass wanted to build, that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. wanted to build, that Barack Obama wanted to build, and, and, and that I want to build. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. And, and I do not mean to put myself on the same level of those three other people. Oh, of course. Very no, I, <laughs> I understand. Well, no, I'm there's a there's a kind of a meta point that I want to draw out here, which is we have such a and by we I mean American culture and a lot of the discourse in American politics right now is so stupidly binary and black and white and right and right v left and 
if anything even remotely rhymes or sounds like a right-wing talking point, then we don't have to think about it. It is a sign of being a right-winger. It is a sign of... And, and what I want to point out is that is a very diminished and impoverished way of thinking. And it means that we are Twitter-brained and we are, we are trapped in that, in a, in a black and white, balkanized, us versus them way of thinking that really diminishes our capacity to think clearly. There are, there are, the, the world is more complex than this. The world is more complex than that. And there are challenging criticisms of a lot of things that maybe we hold dear that come from people who aren't from the right wing, who aren't far right autocrats. The world is more complicated than that. And if all of our thinking is positioned in this reaction this reactionary amygdala response to whatever might sound similar or rhyme with something that we saw on YouTube on PragerU that ruined our day and you know just made us super mad then a that's boring and B, that is a profoundly diminished way of looking at the world, and we have to get out of it. And in order for us to have intellectual integrity, we have to fucking get out of that way of seeing the world. There is more than just this right-left binary, and we have to break out of it. And and that's why I continue to explore these issues despite the threat of being labeled a, you know, a, a right wing whatever. Um, a defense of free speech is not right wing. It can be, but it's more complex than that. It is more nuanced than that. And so that's that's a meta point that I want to draw out here yeah. is if if people are hearing this and hearing just just a a, a right winger just pontificating just some some right-wing american theocrat pontificating then you have lost the plot in a profound way <laughs> anyway well let me, it makes let me, me so say, furious <laughs> sorry yeah. go on go on no i you know, i mean I, I i i agree wholeheartedly um you know let me say a couple of things one is that um this is a form i i have this term from from emily yoffe um uh, of 180ism Right. So there's this idea that sort of like we know who our enemy is um, and whatever belief they hold, we should just hold the, you know, 180 degree inverse view of, of what they say. Um, and unfortunately, that's uh, not just simplistic because there's all kinds of subtleties and gradations in life and there's more than two positions, even though we only have two political parties because of our basic political structure and so on. But it actually gives a tremendous amount of agency to a political enemy, because yes. you know whatever some idiot on the right says tomorrow, you're going to end up believing the opposite. But it still means that they determine what you believe tomorrow. You're, you're handing so them many... the argument. You're handing them. Yep. You're handing them their case. Yeah. And so uh, you know, you, if they're extremely simplistic, you're going to be extremely simplistic too, because you'll just put a minus, you know, in front of whatever they say. Say the opposite, and that's not going to be any more subtle. Um, perhaps better, but but certainly not 
any more 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 subtle. Um, you know, on free speech, uh, you know, this is really one of the ways in which, uh, you know, free speech again. There's obviously been parts of the left that have not lived up to free speech in in, in very clear and drastic ways, which was always to the detriment of the left, by the way. Um, but it has always been thought of as a left-wing value, and that's for very fundamental reasons. I have a whole chapter on free speech and how to sustain a culture of free speech in the book. And I love when you go back to John Stuart Mill and chapter two of On Liberty, one of the most beautiful texts. I love to teach it. It extols all of the beautiful things that come from having free speech. And he's right about those. For example, about the fact that um, you know, even if uh, what's in, at issue is shutting people up who are wrong about something, if we did that, we would stop having living truths and we would just start believing in dead dogma because we never really have to think through our own views if we never encounter somebody who has different beliefs. I think that is true today in certain progressive circles where you never hear the argument on the other side and it's making us stupid and making us not actually understand why we believe what we believe. All of that is right. But I think more important is not the good things we get from having free speech, but the bad things that we uh, encounter when we don't have free speech speech. And there's a whole set of bad things that happen when you don't have free speech. But the most fundamental of them is that nearly by definition, the people who make decisions about what to censor are people who are powerful, right? Because who's going to have the power to censor? Well, it's somebody who's powerful, right? Um, And so the idea that in any kind of systematic way, progressive causes are going to be served by restricting what people can say is just fundamentally and hopelessly naive. And I think it could only take hold because a lot of these conversations took space in sort of quite marginal institutions that were very progressive. So it might be true that, you know, um, a progressive liberal arts college putting in place some kind of speech code is somehow going to, you know, restrict non-progressive opinions and enshrine progressive opinions. I still don't think that's good. I don't think that's what a university is for, but at least I get the empirical premise. But once you have censors in Silicon Valley that decide what social media companies allow you to say or not, or once you had a censor in Washington, D.C. that um, does state-sponsored censorship, as we now have in many democracies, um, that is going to go deeply and fundamentally wrong because it will empower the powerful. And that's why the left has always believed in uh, challenging that. Um, Frederick Douglass um uh, called free speech the dread of tyrants. And I think he was much closer to the mark, much closer to the truth than a lot of, uh, sort of leftist critics of free speech today realize. Yeah. I mean, as as someone who is on the left, as someone who is part of a, a very stigmatized religious minority, and as someone who is gay, I am intensely aware that if I impose limits on speech then i am most likely to be the victim of that of those of those limits i'm i will be the first one and other and and people who are genuine minorities and genuine threats to the status quo they will be the first ones to be silenced and you know what you were just saying and i'll i'll end on this note but what you were just saying about um you know john stuart mill's beautiful book on liberty and and the fruits of free speech reminded me of that reminds me of my time at a small Christian school where I, I went to a, a small Christian college. And there was actually something really beautiful about it because it had a great deal of intellectual diversity. And 
so, you know, I was coming out, I was struggling with my orientation, and that's when I was still very much a Christian, and I was working through the theological implications of my sexuality. How do I square my orientation with my faith? And that was this massive, massive struggle that lasted for years. And there were some professors who were conservative, who were like, Stephen, I love you, but God's plan for humanity is between one man and one woman in the context of marriage, and that's the way God intended this. I love you, I respect you, but this is my theological conviction. And I was able to sit down and respectfully hash it out with them. And then I had other professors who were 100% affirming, who were 100% God made you this way, I love you just as you are. And they would come in, they would invite me into their office at the college, and we would, and would, give me tea and would listen to me and would hear my woes and would talk through stuff and talk through these struggles with me. I had both. I was in classes where it was very progressive, and then I had other classes that were very conservative. And that looking, it was at times frequently painful. It was at times frequently uh, excruciating. But looking back, I realized how much of a gift that was to me. It helped me become more resilient, and it helped me understand where, what I believe and why. And it also helped me empathize with where other people were coming from. It was one of the best educational experiences I could have had, honestly. And then, so tragically, so sadly, after I left that school, the the administration instituted a, a policy, a covenant, where all the faculty and all the teachers had to sign a covenant saying, I affirm that marriage is between one man and one woman and all of these, you know, uh, kind of orthodox Christian values. And there is this mass exodus of the intellectual diversity there. And it narrowed to a conservative viewpoint. And and what I found tragic about that was the limiting of intellectual diversity in this in this college. You know, they were perfectly within their right to do that. They were a private Christian school. They could do that. But it, it was just this tragic loss because I realized that what I, the gift that I received from that school, other students after me won't receive. And that is kind of heartbreaking to me. Uh, it was narrowed down to just one theological position, and that is tragic. So, yeah, I mean, one of the strongest sort of theological arguments for religious tolerance has always been that you can compel the outward science of belief, but you can't compel the internal state of belief. That's right. Um, and so if you're trying to make people, you know, if you really believe, I understand that in a way, if you believe that sort of the right theological beliefs are the difference between salvation and hell, I, I understand why you want to, Go and save people, right? I'm not religious myself, but I, I get of why course. that's a compelling logic. But forcing people to claim that they agree with you is not, in fact, going to make them agree with you. And that's a classic argument for religious toleration. I was struck, uh, you know, in a class recently where I talked about free speech and so on. Some students strongly disagreed with me and actually thought we need real limits on free speech. Others agreed with me. We had a good debate about it. But I asked kids, you know, how do you feel about that in your school? Do you feel like you can talk privately, you know, frankly in private, in class? And there was a mix of opinions. But but what really struck me is a bunch of them said, look, you know, there are certain classes where you just know you have to agree with a professor politically in order to, to get a good grade. And so we do that. And I thought, you know, not only is that fundamentally 
opposed to what a university education should be. But actually, it's not even very effective for us professors because they create an environment in the classroom where they think they're proselytizing. They go home saying, isn't it great? I've like held this lecture compelling my students to believe these things, which are the right things to believe. And they all sort of echoed it. And they're going to go and remake the world. But privately, they don't believe this stuff, right? In, in the same way in which, you, you know, you, you, these, these, these teachers have compelled the outward manifestation of belief but they haven't actually induced real belief. And so I do think we have to have real conversations about this topic. We we have to take different views on this seriously. Um, but 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 I do think that the fundamental way in which we now talk about identity in many of, of these spaces is is fundamentally a trap. And 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 you know, on a principled way, based on real values and principles we hold, and your values are going to be different from mine, and each of your listeners is going to have a different set of values, but on the basis of those considered hopefully noble, hopefully idealistic values, um, we should oppose uh, the identity trap. That's a great note to end on. We just touched the very surface of this book and this topic. You uh, cover so much more. You talk about the roots of the identity synthesis, the philosophical roots, where it came from. You talk about how and why it is destructive and potential alternatives to it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I implore all of my audience to go and buy it and read it, share it with friends, uh, throw it through friends' windows at 3 a.m., uh, attach it to owls and send the owls out to deliver it to friends, um, so on and so forth. And uh, Yasha Monk, we clearly have so much more to talk about. This has been a fantastic conversation, and you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much for joining me. I'd love to come back, and I'd love to see one of these owls in action. All right, well, that is it for this show. The music is by Eleventy-Seven. The theme song is called Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my paying subscribers at sacredtension.substack.com. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>